Right, exactly. I think there's enough abstraction there that you are in the clear ethically. Hey, Zach. Hey, Stephen. Welcome to Worrying Bugs. We aren't on Spotify, but we're within Wi-Fi range of it. What? <laughs> I'm, uh, the, the hotel I'm staying in is in one corner of this block, and in the other corner of this block are the Spotify offices in Stockholm. Oh, wow. So if I knew the password, uh, we could be streaming from Spotify. I don't know the password, though, so... You gotta uh, crawl through the air ducts and... Uh, <laughs> I'm guessing if I just walk in the front door, it's posted somewhere. Access the mainframe, Zach. Mm, yep, okay. Yeah, that'll probably work better. <laughs> Everybody knows the best place to store a mainframe is in the middle of a downtown where property prices are high. <laughs> so, Zach, you are in Stockholm, though. I am. I'm in Stockholm. Cool. All right. I guess we'll just move on then. Nothing to say about that. What? Did, did you have something you wanted? <laughs> no, I'm just trying to get a conversation started. I figured oh, you'd okay. have something I... to say about Stockholm and being in it. Not really. Like, it, it's it's a city. It's in Sweden. <laughs> I've spent most of my time in Stockholm preparing for this podcast. So it has a lot of nice uh, park benches where I can read Phaedrus. But that's really all I can say about it from this trip. Hey, that's something... <laughs> all right and where are you recording from the hotel they didn't pay me so i'm not gonna name drop Ooh. all right that's good business practice mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, did you do much research in choosing your hotel uh like the first page of google research it was that that level of depth uh could you write a paper about it perhaps no, I could not, but I could write a paper about ray tracing. Well, what's the short version? Okay, the, oh. um, the short version is, you know how you like to look at pictures? Yes, I like to look at pictures. And sometimes those are on a computer. Correct. And sometimes those pictures are of things that couldn't happen really. Like a guy couldn't... Um, uh fill his house with balloons and float off to the paradise island right no name dropping or cars could not have eyes right these are but you yeah these are fantastical situations but you still want to see pictures and maybe a series of pictures of these fantastical situations right and in the modern day uh we do that with our computers uh via two different methods um, they're called backwards and forwards rendering. Which way? Which one is which way? I gotta remember now. Um, backwards rendering is when all of the objects are aware of where they are and of where the camera is, and they do their own math to figure out what they look like to the camera. Okay. And forward rendering is where the camera just takes each pixel and looks at what that pixel should look like. It has some math that it does to figure out what that pixel would look like based on the angle of viewing. All right. So And the main way to do... Oh. So, so why do you know so much about ray tracing, enough to write a paper about it? I, uh, I had to do a class on it. Had to is not the right word. I got to do a class on it. 
And so we we talked for part of the class about that. Um, it's called rasterizing, the backwards rendering, and then half of the class was ray tracing, which is that forward rendering method. And at the end of that class, we had to write a paper on ray tracing, which is something that we did in class, and then we got kind of basic code for, and then we had to extend the basic code that he made. All right. And the paper that we're writing is about the extensions that we made. It is dubbed a research paper, and we need to have uh, at least five academic sources that we're referencing, but the recommended extensions weren't all, all things that needed researching necessarily. Okay. So I'm in a dilemma of, um, I kind of came up with some of my own solutions to the problems that he proposed without doing all that much research. And now I need to cite at least five papers in my research paper of things that I reference that I haven't actually used in the program that I'm writing about. Sounds like academic misconduct to me. It's not academic misconduct at all. Mm, I don't know. I think citing sources you didn't use is as bad as not citing sources. I can still read them. I have time. I can read <laughs> the sources and talk about the sources. <laughs> There's, there's a section for what we would do with the program given more time. So I can just make that really big and reference <laughs> things that other people have done and how I would want to apply that to what I've done. All right. Uh, but anyway, it's really hard to find uh, academic paper on the refractive indexes of anything. My, my specific extension of ray tracing was adding transparent materials and when a material is transparent it doesn't the, the rays don't always go straight through sometimes they warp a little bit because that's just what photons do when they go between materials right um so i was thinking maybe i could get a academic article on the different refractive indexes of things because initially i just looked at uh wikipedia but it's actually surprisingly hard to just find an article about the refractive indices of things. Zach, my, my recommendation is to write your own paper about the refractive indexes of things and then cite that. Okay, yeah. Mmm. Hmm. That's a pretty good solution. Write under a pseudonym so that they don't get suspicious. No. You, if you do any research, you need to cite your own papers in any future papers. Right. So I would just need to cite my past paper in this future paper. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if this helps your situation, but it would be very cool if it happened. It, yeah, I think that I have five days left to do it. So maybe a in-depth study on the refractive index of many things isn't on the top of my priority list. But if it was, what would be those things? Uh, mostly air, glass, and water. I realized that when you look at an orb of transparent material, you expect it to have a refractive index closer to water than that of glass. Interesting. These are things I've learned in my class. <laughs> because with the refractive index of glass, sometimes you just can't see an object that is behind it. Right, it's just opaque, even though it's technically transparent. Uh, it's not that it's opaque, but it's that it's... It's refract. The angles that the light enters and exits on make it so you there's like a blind spot almost. So you're saying you can't see through it. You can see through it, you just don't see the things through it that you expected to see through it. So it's opaque. <laughs> That's not how opaque works. 
at all. It's just a moving and changing opaque, depending on its surroundings. Oh yeah, don't worry. These walls in this apartment, they're totally opaque. And by opaque, I mean you look at them and you see an alien planet, not your neighbors. I would consider that opaque. I honestly would. No. Yeah, because what you're you're looking at a thing and like your phone is opaque, right? Right. And it's just showing it could be showing you an alien planet. <laughs> but I'm saying that like physically if you trace the photons through, the photons are coming from an alien planet, whereas in my phone the photons are coming from my phone. Okay, but like if you're talking about like let's say like a, a sphere of glass, Yes. You're mostly getting those photons from not directly behind the sphere of glass, but around the or its surroundings, right? Like Correct. you could trace those photons back to their origin, which I put forward is basically the same thing as a mirror, <laughs> which is definitely opaque. It's just that the the glass is changing the the, the glass changing the trajectory of the photons is what a mirror does, and a mirror is opaque. A mirror is reflective, but yeah, I guess opaque You can't see through would it. also apply. Mm-hmm. I don't know why you're wrong, but you're wrong. <laughs> I, I don't think I am. I, it started as a joke, but I really don't think I'm wrong. Hold on, I'm googling what opaque means, like, definitionally. Fine, opaque, Google. Not be, not able to be seen through. Okay. Right, and you are you are seeing through the glass sphere. You're just seeing through it and out at a different angle. So is a mirror not opaque? If you say a mirror is transparent, then I will concede, but I don't think it is. <laughs> no, a mirror is opaque because you aren't seeing through it. You're the the light is hitting it and then coming off, whereas with the glass sphere it's hitting it, going through the object and then coming out at an angle. Mm, no. What? No, that's not that's not true. Yes, it okay, is. Okay, it's kind of true, but what part of it isn't true? <laughs> uh, the part where you're you're saying that it the light is coming through the glass. It, it is, mm -hmm. but it is also in a mirror. What? The light doesn't like curve, right? It's not like curving through the the sphere. It's getting to a point in the sphere and then getting reflected at a angle that is, uh, that, what's the word? That is related to it, the angle it entered the sphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's Snell's Law. Yeah, so it's just tiny little mirrors, basically. <laughs> no, because the... Yes. It makes an obtuse angle as opposed to an acute angle. I can make an obtuse angle with a mirror. Mm, okay. Something about the normals of the surface. I'm trying to figure out what the way to word this is. I don't know enough about geometric topology, topography, topology. All, all I'm saying to, is that to know like, I, I there's no difference between a mirror, a uh, light hitting a flat mirror and a round mirror, which is what a, a glass. That's not what you're saying. A glass sphere is not a round mirror. Yeah, it is. It's what it's doing. It's no. reflecting light at a certain angle. That's not the only way that... <laughs> okay, yes, it has other properties, but that's that. those properties aren't relevant. Like, one of the properties is... The word isn't reflecting. Yes, it is. No, it's not. 
To think deeply or carefully about. Mirrors can't think, neither can the spheres. Nothing reflects everything. <laughs> oh, wait, okay. Uh, to throw back heat, light, sound without absorbing. Right. It doesn't throw it back, though. It does. How does it not? Okay, so you have a an object of some sort. Right. Let's go with the glass sphere for now. Okay. And if you have some tangent line to a point on that object. Okay. There's a line that points away from the object that is perpendicular to the tangent line. Correct. Correct. This is the outside of the object. That line points outside the object. Yes. When you're reflecting, the light hits that point and then turns toward the outside and then moves. It continues on. It turns toward that arrow pointing away from the object. When you're refracting, the light turns towards the opposite of that line. It turns towards the inside normal. Okay, listeners, sorry, that took like an hour, but finally I convinced Stephen. So, Stephen, I think you need to say for the podcast publicly that you understand that reflection and refraction are different. I don't think I ever claimed to not know that. I <laughs> I think the point I was arguing was a bit more nuanced than that, and that it was glass spheres in every way, shape, and form are mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> So, Stephen, now that we've discussed the physics of light, do you want to discuss the physics of sound? I don't understand microphones. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, got, I know how they work, and they, they're they cool. And, I, like, at a basic level, I definitely understand how they work, but the, at the same level, I understand how cameras work. Like, there's a sensor. It tells a chip that there's light here, here, and here, and the chip is able to spit out a picture. And that's magic. Mm -hmm. I know I know a little bit more about microphones in that sound waves are compression waves, which hit air, which hit, uh, and the waves of air hit a, 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 a big pad, essentially. And when the pad moves, it generates a little bit of electricity, and those can be turned, that can be turned into analog waves, which can be digitally converted into... Well, digital waves, I suppose. Not really waves. Mm. They're ones and zeros that we use to represent the ups and downs of waves. Very cool stuff. But then there are all these different types of microphones. Like, it seems like a pretty simple thing, but ah. there's so many. There's like, and they're all used for different things, and somehow they all work. Which is crazy. Yeah. Um, Zach, I'm going to send you a link over Skype. So I sent Zach the link to Marco Arment's uh, podcasting microphone mega review, mm -hmm. which he reviews like a million microphones, uh, 23 to be exact. And then he talks about the difference between all the different types that you could possibly want to be using for podcasting. And right. so most of them are cardioid mics. Um, that means that they pick up sound in a heart shape somehow. Mm -hmm. Uh and then there, there's a subset of those which are compressor mics, and there's small compressor, or uh, not compressor, uh, condenser. Uh, small condensers and large condensers, and then there's dynamic mics, and those are different because you have to get really, really close to them and talk. But they don't pick up anything else, and small condensers do something similar, and large condensers pick up a lot more stuff, but are generally better sound quality. And then there's all sorts of things that you can do to improve it um, using XLR over USB, but then you need a uh xlr uh what are they called um 
preamp interfaces that's the other direction interfaces yeah and so yeah i'm just looking at all these microphones and i'm entirely overwhelmed and don't understand how they work okay uh, i was all ready to say that the your your voice moves the air and the air movement moves a little thing in the microphone that gets turned into electrical signal uh because i get paid to do this stuff um and i read read that uh there's like the the book to do if you're setting up uh speaker and microphone systems it's yamaha shoot what is the name of it yamaha sound reinforcement handbook which is just about how to make sound sound better (laughs) and they go through a whole thing on on how you can wiggle the air with a speaker with a magnet on it and that kind of stuff uh but i don't think i got to the part where they discuss the difference between a dynamic and a condenser microphone before i got bored Anyway, uh, I just wanted to say that microphones are magic, and I probably shouldn't look into them too much, because then I know this about myself. If I start uh, understanding something too much, I will want to... um, uh, If I know the difference between a good and a bad, or a good and a decent, Uh then I will want Mm -hmm. the difference between a good and a decent... And this this microphone, I have a blue snowball at the moment, and it works fine. My voice sounds pretty good on Audacity and stuff. Uh, I would say that the majority of the imperfections in the Worrying Bugs podcast don't come from the microphone, but come from the environment. Mm-hmm. But the, the thing with some microphones is they aren't cardioid pickup. They're a smaller region. Right. So, like, if you had a a shotgun podcast microphone, you could just talk into the front and you wouldn't have to worry about environment sound. Right. And from what I've gathered from Marco's review, those kind of microphones have a worse uh, voice quality, I guess. Okay, yeah. Because they, by definition, they can't pick up as much stuff. I feel like I've heard good things about the Neumann... Yeah, and I mean, I trust Marco uh, to make a good review. Um, I'm not dropping $600 on a mic at the moment, plus a $100 XLR interface. Mm-hmm. Um, Here he's got a $400 XLR interface. Right. I- I'm So, yeah, I, um, I- I'm interested in microphones now, and we will see if I end up doing more research about it, but something on my mind at the moment. What got you interested in microphones? Because we've been podcasting for over a year now. What what made the switch flip? Well, uh, as some of our longtime listeners will know, we occasionally can't do a podcast every two weeks. So we have to release an out-of-time episode, one that we've pre-recorded. And mm-hmm. one of them has just abysmal sound quality. <laughs> Because both Zach and I were not in ideal environments by any means. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about if we were going to do something like that again, how could we improve that? We get the, like the hanging choir microphones. Because the issue with that was we were in a room and I was moving around in that room. So we need to just hang three or four microphones like that from the ceiling. Right. That are built to be hung from the ceiling. Yes, that would be an... A, a, a solution and it would work pretty well and i think the better solution is just to not do something like that again 
<laughs> I don't know. I, I think it was a good format. It just needs some needs just some hard, fixing Just hard up. to listen to for a long time is all I'm saying. Yeah. Lucky for you listeners, I'm cutting it down to an hour and ten minutes. We could get a bunch of PZMs, the mm-hmm. little like floor microphones, and just cover the room with them. Right. That will be our... Oh, I wonder... Hmm. So there's that like sound canceling foam. Right. Okay, so you, you know how some podcasters have like a stand-up coffin of foam? Yeah. That, but microphones. Would that work? <laughs> Assuming you had a big enough XLR interface. Yeah, because they're just built to pick up the sound. So you would think that they would suck up sound just like an auditorium full of people sucks up sound. That's more fabric, I suppose. I'm not sure. All right. That'll be follow-up. I found something <laughs> finally to do for follow-up. <laughs> yeah, listeners, if you have uh, access to, like, 80 PCM microphones... Or so, you please. know, like, if you want to, like, spread them apart a little bit. Mm-hmm. Can we mulligan on this transition? Excuse me? Can I mulligan on this transition? I feel like... Mulligan. I've got a... What time are we at? We're at 50 minutes of recording. Just like throw up our hands and say it's not possible and hard cut right into. An informal golf, an extra stroke allowed after a poor shot not counted on the scorecard. Okay, so uh, never mind. Whatever you're going to do, we're talking about mulligan now as a (laughs) verb. Okay. Or a noun. Okay, so... Zach, what is, what is your position? I, I know you're not much of a golfer, but mm-hmm. if you were to play golf, yeah, or mini golf, let's let's switch it to mini golf. I mean, I've played golf before. I I know, but like, uh, we're trying to be relatable here. We can't be. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Yeah. Hello, fellow children. Uh-huh. I play mini golf and mm-hmm. uh, may <laughs> I play the maymays. <laughs> um. So, so what is your position on? uh on mulligans in mini golf and mini golf i don't think i've ever played mini golf against somebody actually really keeping track of how many shots we took what how do you know who wins that's not really the point of mini golf i beg to differ if you're at a mini golf thing and the most exciting thing there is who wins you're at a bad mini golf institution Okay, maybe not the most important thing. The most important thing is to have fun, just like any game. But uh-huh. but I think that keeping track of the score and having your competitiveness and your... Um, eh. Okay, okay, I, you've convinced me. Let's say I'm playing mini golf against you and you're really keeping track of the st- score. And I'm just like, whatever. Uh, okay, so let's say that... A third party, so that we're not uh, assigning. We can't be biased biased by our friendship. Just some dude. Gotcha. Okay. We, we probably we know him, but we don't. Uh, we're not as good friends as we are with each other. Mm-hmm. And they just botch a shot. They just awful. It goes uh, across the street and uh, almost hits a dog. Hmm. Uh, see, because I the the definition of mulligan that you read out that you can redo a shot without it counting against you is different from what I know of, or maybe I know mulligan is two different things. There's the redoing of a shot, and then there's also I'm, I've taken eight shots and you've taken two, 
And so I just come and drop up next to where you are because I'm still behind. Oh, okay. And then we play from there. And so I think it would be more that case of Mulligan, where it counts as a shot, but then they just start from where we are. Where did you learn this word? My dad. Okay. Because I am struggling to find a definition that matches that. Okay. It, it probably does just mean retaking a shot from the same place. And it's possible that he said it once and then I picked it up in my 11-year-old brain and went, ooh, mulliganing. That just means I can do things without them counting as shots. I see. Um, it, uh, according to the Urban Dictionary, the fourth definition is an old jazzer term for a marijuana cigarette. A mulligan? Yes. In a sentence, don't bogart that mulligan, my friend. <laughs> Is this Urban Dictionary, did you say? Yes, the fourth definition. Okay, that makes sense. Um, uh, for our listeners who don't know what Bogart means, like myself. Yeah. Uh, a sla- slang verb, to keep something all for oneself, thus depriving anyone else of having any. Okay. Uh, it drives from the famous actor Humphrey Bogart. Who because was notoriously selfish. Uh, because he often kept a cigarette in the corner of his mouth, seemingly never actually drawing on it or smoking it. Huh. Interesting. All right. So both golfer and ja- jazz, jazzy, what was their name for them? Jazzer, a, an old jazzer. jazzer term. Okay, so both golfers and jazzers have their own kind of language. <laughs> and apparently the Sharp family. And yeah, we've got, uh, it's it's a derivative of golfer. It's like an accent. Mm-hmm. A, a regional dialect, I suppose, of golfer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And you can, you can learn all those. You can go online and look in a golfer dictionary or whatever. The master of but transitions at work. Not, <laughs> there's not the same thing for what all the buttons mean. <laughs> what buttons, Zach? All of the buttons. You are a technically abled teenager. Correct. And so I'm assuming a lot of times in your life, people older or peers or whoever have come to you and said, Hey, Steven, how do I do this thing? Yeah, and I tell them that's not my job. And they leave me alone and don't try to talk to me after that. When your mother comes up to you and says, Hey, Steven, I need to send an email to this guy. You say that's not my job and go back to furiously typing or No, I just want to. Okay. <laughs> so when there's somebody who you who you care about, who isn't your peer uh, expecting something unreasonable of you, but a parent expecting something fairly reasonable of you, Stephen, you can look at the problem and you can look at the thing in front of you and you just know how to tackle that problem, right? I mean, sometimes most of the, I mean, if if you've seen it before, yeah. If you've seen the problem before, absolutely, you know how to do it. If you haven't seen the problem before, you have an idea of how to tackle it, right? It's not mm-hmm. like... And that's what I mean, that you can quickly figure out how to tackle it. Generally, yeah. And you can do that by... I come to you with a, a brand new operating system that I d- d- downloaded through my mirror to a uh, space planet. <laughs> And I bring it to you and say, hey, I want to figure out how to change the brightness. And first you say, Zach, that's not my job. And then you say, okay, well, but you're a friend, so. I I mean, that's a, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly what it's called. Um, 
what's the word for things that are the same in different places? Cognate. Um, as far as user interface design, trying to think, um, because there's like metaphors, Mm -hmm. which are like, like, uh, the send button on an email client might look like a paper airplane because you're like sending it. Mm -hmm. But then there's stuff like, um, let's say like, um, shoot, I don't know, uh, well, like the hamburger menu, I think is one that I just instantly know to look at. And not everybody does. The hamburger menu is like the design word for um, three vertical dots that basically say there's a further menu here. There's more information if you click me. And based on the dots being vertical, you can guess that the menu that it makes will be vertical too. And more importantly, it won't do something else. It won't like just it won't like minimize the window or anything mm-hmm. that's not what the hamburger menu will ever do because no one would design something like that or hopefully no one would design anything like that it won't go to your go to um oh shoot that joke doesn't work there are no hamburger places that deliver are there mcdonald's does uber eats deliveries now okay so it won't go to your <laughs> go to uber eats and order you a mcdonald's burger Right, that's not what the hamburger menu does, even though it looks like <laughs> maybe it might do that. I forgot what the name... God, I cannot figure out the word for this. Um, oh, well, it, it, it's that just consistent... It's just that consistent uh, design elements mm-hmm. are helpful in trying to understand a new system. Yeah. In any case, you know what that is you just can look at a site and figure out okay well this probably means open the menu or maybe we need to scroll down to get more information or whatever okay but you i'm guessing don't know how to convey that if somebody came to you and said steven you're a genius at this stuff how do i know what buttons to hit well i just told you You, the hamburger menu does this right but then what's this thing down on the bottom here and it's like a trapezoid and then there are some waves coming out of it or something okay so i mean it just comes from using computers right like the more you use a computer the more you'll notice things like that Mm -hmm. and even if you don't notice them a lot of i would probably i would guess that a lot of people have never put into words what a hamburger menu does but they definitely know what it does right so let's let me switch gears for one second, Stephen. If you were to go to Rome, okay, and study there for a semester or something, or just to visit, you would have an advantage because you already know Latin, but you probably couldn't hold a conversation in Italian, right? And you wouldn't go there and just step off the plane in Italy and expect to, from context clues, be able to pick up on the entire Italian language right away. Probably not, no. But what you would do to prepare yourself to go to Italy is some sort of class, like Duolingo or like Rosetta Stone. Mm -hmm. I think in the same way, we shouldn't throw people into the design languages of our computers that developers and designers have built up in this tower of Babel that just keeps looping in on itself as more people understand in Silicon Valley what the hamburger icon is, more people use it without ever checking that somebody in rural Wyoming knows what a hamburger menu is. Okay, but, I mean, 
Uh, okay, so I'm going to make a small point and I uh, give me a second to finish the thought. Okay. So there are things like that. They're just not made for those for those t- kinds of people. They're made for designers. So like material design has this whole page on what icons can be used for what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all the icons have names. And like, this is a floating action button. It shouldn't do this and should do this. And should never be used as a hamburger menu, and should be used as a quick action thing. Right. So, I think that resources like that are available. They're just not typically made for that demographic. So you're saying that my already great business plan is even greater because all of the information is there, it's just not presented in as approachable a way, because it's... uh, I, as a as a person who is trying to figure out how computers work, don't need to understand the dot-pixel ratios that Google expects me to use, but it would be nice for me to understand what a floating action button does. Yes, that's what I'm saying. I didn't realize that you were trying to make a business out of it, though. I wasn't until just now. <laughs> okay, well, uh, every good business needs a name, so... Oh, okay. Zach, what, what are you naming it? Because technical Rosetta Stone, that's just a little, Mm -hmm. uh, that's a lot of words, lots of syllables. (laughs) I was trying to come up with, um, uh, like a combined word. What's the, there's a word for when you combine words to make a word. (laughs) I don't know it. Uh, portmanteau. Uh, let's see. Yes. Blending the sounds and combining the meanings of two other words it's a portmanteau so i was trying to come up with a portmanteau between design and language and the best i got was dizingo <laughs> that's not bad as far as like a friendly approachable site dizingo dizingo with a, a z d-e-z-i-n-g-o mm-hmm. dizingo Zingo. The best I could come up with on short notice was uh, Roteca Stone. <laughs> That's pretty good, too. <laughs> Ooh, um, Bluetooth is actually one of those symbols, but also came from an old uh, Norse inscription. So maybe you find the name of that stone and call it whatever stone, like the King of Bluetooth Stone. Secret history of Bluetooth from Gizmodo. It's funny because every once in a while you're looking around at all these like really old Swedish artifacts and they'll have the Bluetooth rune etched into them. (laughs) Okay, um, so the Scandinavian runes, also called, oh boy, uh, Hagal Bjarken? Uh, I'm looking at um, Younger Futark. Oh, we're looking at Futark. Oh yeah, Futark. Futark? So yeah, there's the elder Futark and the younger Futark, and Bluetooth belongs to the younger Futark, looks like. Okay. Maybe? I can't really tell. So you call it the Futark stone. Right. Or maybe younger Futark, because then it like it gives the it's like youth understanding this new newfangled technology. Younger Futark? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a little too unapproachable. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, Dzingo is what we're going to stick with for now, I think. So, I think uh, Dzingo is a good plan. 
And I think it, it, it's it's pretty easily implementable, but that doesn't mean that right now I'm going to implement it. No. But I could. I like I can make a website. I can get information from other websites. I can pull stuff off of uh, the material design guidelines. And the same goes for you. And I don't think that you're going to stop recording this podcast and immediately go out and design Zingo. I am purchasing the, the domain name, though. Oh. Uh, hover, if you would like to sponsor <laughs> us, that would be awesome. And it has to be .com. Well, let's see. I'm looking up if Dzingo is available as a .com. Although my internet is atrocious, so one moment, please. Because the target wouldn't be looking. The, the idea is you want to approach the people who still have notions of the computer from the 90s. And they wouldn't be looking at Dzingo.io. They would just want to type in the thing and then put a .com after it, like cars.com or hotels.com. Hmm. Okay, Dzingo.com is not uh. available. Um, you got .net.org, .site, .website. Uh, you got online, design, live, XYZ. XYZ would be a good one. Yeah, but what I'm saying is it needs to be too. a .com. Yeah, I know, but if that's really the case, then it needs to be a phone book. Or just shows up at their house and they're like, oh, how helpful. Okay, yeah. Dzingo, they're using that address. And it is a design firm, so they have good reason to. What about with an S instead of a Z? Dzingo. We can just pronounce it however uh, we want. If you have $4,000, we can buy it right now. It depends. <laughs> what do you mean no recommendations found? There you go. Oh, yeah, it's a premium domain. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't understand how they decide those types of things. Uh, because hugedomains.com purchased it from the ICANN, and it, it's owned by huge domains, but they are willing to sell at a price. Oh, uh, desi.ngo is available. Just so it's just a zingo with a period in the middle. NGO is a top-level domain. Mm. And that is available. Yes, for $65. Uh. Huh. Well, I have to think about this. Okay, yeah. Uh, no one... No one... Uh, snipe? That's not right. Swoop in? Uh, scoop. scoop, yes. Yeah. No one scoop us. I'm trusting mm. you guys. Anyway, continue your segue. <laughs> so what's the... What's the reason, I suppose, that you wouldn't get up right now and go make dzingo.com or dzin.go dzid.ingo <laughs> no there's no i in the top level domain it's just ingo dzid.ingo dzid.ingo i guess the reason would be that i have too many sad projects already okay and i don't feel especially confident that this is uh a good investment on my part mm. so the the bar for it would be you feel like there's some sort of return on investment whether it's enjoyment or money time mm -hmm. whatever what's the last thing that passed that bar that you just made uh the last thing i can talk about is the vlog i guess okay yeah like that was definitely an enjoyment thing mm -hmm. And I was sacrificing a bit of time and energy to have some enjoyment. My last thing, I think, would be 
uh, as, as I was learning Swedish, there's two different forms of each noun. There's bestämd and obestämd, which are definite and indefinite. So basically the equivalent of putting the in front of the word. So you say cat and the cat is cat okay. and katten. But that changes based on the gender and then just where it falls, especially once you start getting into plurals. So the cats would be katternas, katter, katterna would be the cats. But that kind of information is hard to keep in my head and I wanted a way to just quiz myself on it. And so I had been wishing for a while that somebody made some sort of website that you could go to and it would just pull a random Swedish word and test you on how you make it plural, how you make it definite, how you make it plural and definite, how you just, yeah, all, all those different forms that it can take. Okay, and you want to specifically quiz you and not just give you the information? Yeah. Okay. And are there websites that just give you the information? I mean, Wikishionary, the, the Wiki Dictionary. Okay, so you can go look up a Swedish word and it'll tell you all the right. forms. Okay. But do they have an API? Uh, yes, but it's terrible and I'm better at just using things through the front end. All right. Um, but at some point I had an exam to study for. And instead of actually studying for the exam, I spent three hours getting lost in the Python of making that thing work. And so I now have a locally hosted, not quite perfect thing to quiz myself on the forms of Swedish nouns. Public on GitHub? Not at all. I might uh. make it public on GitHub if I can reduce some of the dependencies, because right now I just used the really common Python HTML import and parser, but I don't need all of that functionality. Right. I just really need it to be able to find a table and spit out the information of that table mm -hmm. but now that exam is over and i probably won't that heavily be learning swedish again so i guess i wanted to have a discussion on when those kind of things are worth it when you know that you could just build it yourself because you're a computer guy who does computer things mm -hmm. so I, I guess uh if we're gonna looking at it objectively mm -hmm. right so this is a thing that will take up uh, probably a pretty significant portion of your time. If I continue to develop it? Yeah. Okay. So what are the... What are your returns? You... I, I, I'm just... I'm speaking for you now. Maybe... Advertising uh, revenue. Uh, feeling good that you improved the world. Um, mm -hmm. Making it easier for future students. Uh, if you link to your Patreon, you could uh, have some have a donation kind of thing, a little tip jar, okay. basically. But if you do something like that, you would be expected to maintain it and stuff. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I, I'm looking at it. If it, if it were me, but I also do want to. Have I would. I something up in open source. So maybe making it an open source project to show off. Uh, resume builder. Basically, yeah, just so that when people look at my GitHub, it's not a uh, defunct alternative to a thing that we never even finished. Right. That's a good idea. Um, that would be a pretty good way to do it. And just put a note in the readme, like, I almost called it a readme. <laughs> um, put a note in the re readme, like, 
this is no longer under development. If it's broken, sorry. I mean, or just not actively de- actively develop it myself, but look at pull requests and stuff from people. I think there there would be a way to work with it that wouldn't be a high level of stress and involvement. Mm-hmm. All right, that's that was good advice. Thank you. I wasn't sure. Uh, it, I'm looking at. Uh, I mean, I am obviously in a different situation than you are, uh, mostly because I don't understand Swedish uh-huh. at all. But I'm looking at it, and from I'm thinking about if I were to make a thing like that, I would keep it private mm-hmm. because it is a useful utility for me, or maybe not even anymore for you. Yeah. But um, if I was going to make it, I would keep it private because it does not seem like because I learned my lesson with the water tracker, basically. That is too much work letting other people enjoy your things. Yes. So that was the last thing that you looked at and thought, hmm, this could be better. And I'm a computer science guy. And now you're regretting it? I'm not regretting it. Um, People don't say, I learned my lesson about things that are enjoying a lot. I don't don't regret it. Uh, I, with the same information, I would have made the same decision. And I think even with this new information that's going to be a lot of work, I probably would, still would have made the same decision because I was uh, fairly emotional about the water about the state of water trackers on the App Store, mm-hmm. strangely. Uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, it did end up being far more work than I thought it would be, which is not uncommon for uh, <laughs> computer science projects. <laughs> And now, a PSA from the Worrying Bugs. Action needed. We are updating our terms of service and privacy policy. Click here to continue receiving these messages. This is Ben, a PSA from the Worrying Bugs. GDPR happened. All of your data is protected forever and always so long as you're not in the US. (laughs) Oh god, there's just so many emails, Zach. (laughs) But I think I think the emails did one good thing, which is remind you all of the things that you have old derelict accounts on. Nope. No? Oh, okay. Not for me, but I'm sure it did work for some people. Mm-hmm. I, very few things that I realize I have accounts with that I didn't remember already. I, oh God, I hate email so much. I think it has its place. I think mine will be better when I'm not getting Facebook group updates as much now that the semester's over and I'm not part of the MDH International student group. I I don't understand your your big issue with email. It's annoying. And sometimes it's like and sometimes it requires actions. It's like action needed and I don't want to do it. Are they things you need to do? Like, is it actually action needed, or is it action needed if you want to get this great deal from Harvey's elbow joint? Um, (laughs) I was trying to parody Harry's, and it went terribly. Sometimes. Sometimes action is actually needed. (laughs) And sometimes it's like those stupid GDPR emails where they're like, "Uh, you need to do something, otherwise you're going to get sued by Europe or whatever. (laughs) But not really. The company's yeah, going to get sued, sued by Europe, not me. Or usually what that means is action needed or else you won't be subscribed to this email list anymore. And thank God. So on the things that the action actually is needed on, shouldn't you... Isn't it good that you have the information that the action is needed? 
Listen, I'm not pretending that this makes a whole lot of sense. <laughs> but I do hate email because I get emails about things I don't want to do. I'm not saying there's a better alternative. I'm not saying the email should go away. I just really hate emails. Okay. Maybe if you got more personal communication in email, you would have a better overall view of email. If people started encrypting their emails, <laughs> I would also have a better view of email. But that's not going to happen either. All right. Until desit.no.ango. Uh, Dezingo. Until Dezingo uh, makes a PGP mm. section. You'd have to distribute Dezingo disks and USB keys for people. <laughs> I mean, God, it's just so hard to like get to the lowest common denominator. Maybe the Dezingo disk just has the bare minimum of information that you need to load up the Dezingo website. I mean, maybe. So you can charge like 30 bucks for a Dezingo disk and then somebody puts it in and it's just like, here's the first five lessons on... That's very scammy. You're charging $30 for a free thing. You aren't charging 30 You're charging $30 for information on how to open the internet. That's a free thing. Maybe not $30, but I think there is some level where the disc manufacturing isn't... Okay, yeah, charge the price of manufacturing the disc, but nothing more than that. You gotta turn a profit somewhere. Then put ads in, or make it a subscription service or something, but that's just really scammy. If it's free, you're just... But if you don't know how to do it, it's more money for a service specifically for people who don't know how to do it. Okay, yep, you're you're right. <laughs> Okay, so you charge for the disc, but the disc includes one month of the subscription service. How about that? Yeah, that, that's better. That's much okay. better. Zach, we are... Uh, this, this next installment is one of our favorite uh, root vegetables. <laughs> um. uh, that well-known worrying bugs beat of milk politics. And what is it this week? Uh, it's not this week at all. It happened March 2016, uh, before we were even recording. But how? See, how do we? Uh, how do we miss this? How did that get through our Google alert? I'm not sure. I it was it was a big miss. I found out about it. Um, I think just scrolling through Instagram. Uh, when when somebody was making a parody of it, and I had to find all of the background information. Um. So the background information is, in March 2016, West Virginia legalized raw milk, uh, which is milk that hasn't been pasteurized in any way, and you mm. could consume it legally, but you still couldn't sell it or distribute it legally. To celebrate the passage of this raw milk bill, I, I didn't look up why it was that they felt like raw milk needed to be legalized. Um... <laughs> But once they had passed this bill saying that raw milk was legal, the legislator who sponsored the bill brought in some raw milk to share with his other congresspeople. Shortly thereafter, about half of the West Virginia Congress got sick. Um, there, there's still some dubious claims that it was entirely unrelated to the raw milk and there was just a bug going around. But it happened mostly to the people who tried the raw milk. Uh, and I suppose the, the final funny conclusion is that, um, right after they passed the bill, it hadn't yet taken effect. It took effect later that year. Uh, so they were technically still illegally consuming that raw milk. Aha. Uh -huh. I feel like you weren't fully engaged with my story, Stephen. 
Not at all. I'm sorry. I'm too busy creating Google alerts for more <laughs> politics. I'm glad. That's that's worth it. Um. So, okay, let's see if I can do some recalling of what mm-hmm. you said. Uh, <laughs> um. So there was... In, in West Virginia, they legalized uh, the consumption of past- unpasteurized mm-hmm. milk. Uh, not the selling of it, though. But uh, before the law was officially passed, some was doing that, and they... Um, they shouldn't have been because it hadn't fully gone through yet. And also they all got sick. And also they all got sick, of course. Which is just such a, a, a great way to finish that up. And like, I've had raw milk before. They didn't, it was just milk at a farm. It wasn't like, didn't have the big name, but I've had it before. Mm. I am still alive. I mean, my personal beliefs lead me to think that as long uh, as long as you're not selling it, you should be able to distribute mm-hmm. unpasteurized milk. Yeah, I, I I also saw it as kind of weird that up until then you couldn't even consume it, especially mm-hmm. if it's in your own home. Who's going to right? It, I mean, it's falling into the same category. Like, if you can't even consume it, it's falling into the category of you know like hard drugs, <laughs> which is very strange. And even a lot of times, the the t- partaking in hard drugs isn't the thing that's illegal it's more the selling having and purchasing right yeah you can you can be high you just can't have the stuff so i i don't know i don't know what the story behind this law was i think i need to do some deeper research i'm realizing now that i i just barely scraped the surface and i need to get the background right. we need to call up whoever it was that poisoned all of his fellow congress people with raw milk and see okay. why he thought that this was an important law to pass so if you know why raw milk is so important for the citizens of west virginia or if um if you own Dizing- dizingo with a z and want to sell it to us uh we can negotiate on twitter i'm at the puns guy and if you want to give me like i'm gonna say like at most five tweets max about how microphones work you can reach me at at not stephen barry and now we're gonna move into our book club we're reading the phaedrus by plato and we read up to just before um just before Socrates' second speech, uh, uh, in my book, it's the line, and here is how the speech should go, uh, which there's a symbol here that's 244A, but I'm not sure what that means. It's very <laughs> unclear. Yes, yes it is. But that one, I'm pretty sure that that seems like a standard thing. Yeah. You know, that wouldn't change that between mm-hmm. volumes. It's a reference number of some sort. So up to 244A? Sure, let's do it. Uh, if you're not list- if you're not reading along with us, um, you, there's still I, I mean we're gonna spoil some stuff. But if you're not planning to read the Phaedrus anyway, uh, I would say that it, there's still some pretty good content in our book club. Yeah, so. it's not. I think it's old enough that some meta commentary might raise points that the reading the book would as well. Right. Right. But if you uh, are going to stop listening now, uh, we will see you in a fortnight. So it starts out and Socrates and Phaedrus meet on a walk or something. And 
um, Socrates says that it's, uh, quote, it's more refreshing to walk along the country roads than city streets, to which I disagree entirely, uh, for a few reasons, but the primary point being there are many more dogs in the city streets. <laughs> I guess I, my main issue with country, uh, what, what do you call them? Call, country, country roads. roads, country streets. Country roads and city streets. Co- country roads have cars that go fast and no sidewalk which i know it wasn't a problem in Socrates' Mm -hmm. time but that is the issue now yeah i think i think the best overall even above country roads and city streets is green areas parks or whatever or just trails designated within a city because then you've Mm -hmm. got the dogs and the greenery i don't need a whole lot of dogs but one or two is always nice all right I'm I'm glad we can come to agreement. Although I don't think <laughs> I don't think Socrates was thinking, "Oh, I'm going to, you know, ponder the universe and such and oh, dog." Fair. I I think I also would just enjoy the city noise, hmm. which maybe is is a, a personal enjoyment. And then they're talking and Socrates says, don't you think I would consider it, quote, more important than the most pressing engagement, end quote, as Pindar says, um, which I think is the equivalent of me directly quoting Tim Ferriss mid-sentence. <laughs> if, I, if I am understanding the context of this correctly. That sounds right. I think you're getting it. And then later on, they were talking about walking all the way to Megara, as uh, Herodicus recommends, and touching your hand to the wall there and then walking back. Uh, and that's that that kind of discourse is really just basically what happens when you and your friend both read the same entrepreneur self-help bo- help books. <laughs> um, and then on page seven, I have Phaedrus starting to read out Lysias's uh, work. But then the footnote says that maybe it wasn't actually Lysias's work. Maybe it was just a parody by Plato, which kind mm. of brings into question how modern works will be remembered. Is it presumptive to think that all the contextual media today will always be available? And also that future historians will want to put in the work to track down some original meme on the Internet Archive page of 4chan? Hmm. Interesting. Is, is this era different in its contexts? I'm not sure, but I do think this era is different in its volume, mm-hmm. I guess. Not the size, but the amount. In that a future historian might spend a lifetime, or like half a lifetime maybe, studying a single meme and tracing it back. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't, like, meme. Uh, memes can be a historical field <laughs> rather than a specific field uh, uh, uh ones it's you can't study like memes the whole anymore it's like it, it'd be like trying to study weapons i feel like memes might be more like like you could do a thesis paper on advertisement through the ages right now yeah but you're leaving a lot of details out like that's just the mm-hmm. the nature of it Advertising is such a huge field and continually growing. Same with memes. But inherent in memes is that they grow in the weird little back corners that are harder to trace down. Right, right. And there's, I'm, I'm sure there are efforts to document uh, memes and meme uh, origins and culture. <laughs> Maybe in 30 years, the 
the super futuristic computers will be advanced enough that they can actually load know your meme and all of the whatever javascript widgets make it take three years to load <laughs> maybe I-, I think that future historians will have a uh easier time in some ways and a harder time in other ways than what we currently know about plato's mm-hmm. works uh i highlighted uh the line besides a lover keeps his eye on the balance sheet where his interests have suffered from love and where he has done well and when he adds up all the trouble he has taken he thinks he's long since given the boy he loved a fair return um that paragraph okay on page eight uh it's interesting it's basically saying you can't blame a non-lover for your lack of money because they didn't compel you to give it to them. You gave it to them out of in your right mind, per se. Him neglect. I didn't get anything about getting money from a lover or a non-lover or anything. Well, okay, not not money per se. Uh, it, I, I used money because time mm-hmm. is money and whatever. The yeah. balance sheet metaphor there. Your the lover is saying, Okay, what is this what is this costing me, basically? Mm-hmm. While while uh, a non lover, uh, uh just a friend will have a di- different relationship with your your wealth, your balance sheet. And I thought that was interesting. I don't know. I guess I mm-hmm. just highlighted it. Yeah, I'm just rereading it to try and see what I can parse out of it. And I think it does play into what they say later that the lover at some point will snap out of it and go, oh, shoot, that was way too far and just back away. And then the balance sheet, as they see it, will not be right. They will be a different person from when they were in right. infatuated. I, they keep using the word in love, and I think infatuated is the, the word to use. Probably. And I think you can apply that to a lot of things. I, I, um, I'm looking at, um, one second, let me find something in my life that matches that description. Hold on. Not a person, but a thing. Like, sometimes you get really interested in a thing, and you... Okay, so at some point in my life, I was very into uh, videos and video editing, so I... I bought mm-hmm. Final Cut, so, and that's a $300 program, and looking at it now, I i mean, I did have that infatuated feeling with video editing. I wanted to, but I mean, looking back at it now, my balance sheet was probably a bit out of line, mm-hmm. I guess. But I think there's also a lot that says to follow what you love, and if you pursue it fa- far enough, the the balance sheet will start evening out. Like, I, I did the same, no, the I same kind of calculations, but I pushed it a little further, I suppose, and I did make some money for a while doing video. And then Final Cut did make sense, because I was making money doing it. But I got Final Cut, or Premiere, actually, before I ever started making any money off of it. Right. And I suppose then to unfurl the metaphor, does that play back into the lover thing? And I don't mm-hmm. think so. I think that's that's definitely more set up to be a parabola and not any sort of wave with pluses and mm-hmm. minuses. It's all just kind of riding the high of the infatuation and then some realization and then it's downhill. You don't think that 
an infatuation can last. I do. When it comes to people. Uh, let me ask you something quick. Uh, what are your... What is your X and Y representing in that metaphor? I don't metaphor, know. The parabola. Okay, well, X sounds like time. What's Y? Y is just the total amount gotten out of it. That metaphorical balance sheet that they talk about. Okay, okay. I guess it's it's more, more put into that... it relative to gotten out of it. Because it starts right, with putting right. a bunch in and then realizing that the whole bunch that they're putting in... Yeah. That ratio. Gotcha. Okay. And so with Premiere mm-hmm. for you, that it wasn't a parabola. It went, it went, the wave went up, then down a bit, then leveled off at some point. Or is it it's still, still fluctuating? Because I'm still paying Adobe money and the vlogs aren't earning me any money. Right. But you don't think that's, that can happen with uh, human relationships? I think it can but I think that the the story they're telling, the, the pederasty, pederastic relationships are, maybe they don't, it's not that they never do that, but they don't often do that. Level off. Uh, try, I mean, pederastic relationships in our, in our experience, Zach, aren't very common. Right. So it's interesting that you would say that they... Don't often do that. They're less likely to I do that. I guess because my when... only view of them is through these, the two speeches that are both like... And your, your right. biases. So, <laughs> um, so what's required to make it a wave rather than a parabola? I don't know. I, this, this would be the opportune time for me to start saying, oh, well, communication and mutual respect and all of that and that's but that doesn't make your point (laughs) why not i think they're at least in the ones that they're describing um where it's a lover pursuing this beautiful boy it's not built out of a place of mutual respect uh later on page eight love is compared to a disease and that kind of thing it's um in that dynamic where the where the what are we calling the the older man just older man Uh, where the older man pursues the beautiful boy is it i mean there is there's opportunity at least for the beautiful boy to to love the man how are you i guess i need to read what you're reading because i didn't pull that from this speech uh, I, uh okay it's not what's being argued okay I, i'm i'm arguing against okay. you not against you just Socrates. mentioned that there was somewhere in the yeah no I, i'm using i'm trying to cite evidence um love is not a it's not a like it, uh, according to socrates at least uh love isn't a thing that you can necessarily control it's just a thing that it is like a disease where you might catch it if you're not careful okay Okay, and what that implies is that 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 arc you're talking about, the how much you put in versus how much you get out, what it implies is that if you've gotten bitten by the love bug, <laughs> then you generally have to make an effort to uh rid mm-hmm. yourself of it right like the symptoms have to be bad enough that you are like well i should probably uh get some yeah. medical attention here 
or you know eat mm-hmm. more oranges or whatever you do for colds or whatever you at some point on your balance sheet it stops being once you pass the this isn't worth it anymore point yeah once you cross that it it's they're um uh what's what are they called in financial terms the cost of changing things uh, yeah just the switching costs sure yeah switching costs there are switching costs to getting out of that relationship so even past the point of this isn't worth it anymore you might stay in that relationship mm-hmm. so and that kind of thing is really hard to represent right. on a line the, graph the like parabola that. was a on the fly thing that i'm even now realizing had faults it's interesting because because of those switching costs occasionally not always obviously nothing here is absolute when you're talking about Mm -hmm. stupid monkey emotions but it can allow you to continue a relationship past the point where it's not worth it anymore but maybe you will maybe in this case it is a type of wave and not a parabola okay uh well on page nine there's the line uh you've given up what is most important to you already and the footnote is a commonly repeated footnote in this text um which is just the quotation of the last like five words and then a colon and then the word sex because all throughout this book plato or whoever is writing the speeches uses a lot of flowery language to avoid saying the word sex and the translator is having none of it (laughs) i haven't been looking at the footnotes as closely (laughs) as i should have that's a lot of them (laughs) okay so uh he makes a interesting observation that i think we've all kind of felt at some point which is that you can't get a good and accurate assessment of a thing so a thing you made let's say you made like let's say you're me and you made a vlog and you say to your to your lover you say hey how's this vlog and they're like it's great and then you show it to zach and he's like it's okay uh uh, that kind of thing is just inherent in a uh in a in a relationship with a lover you it and he's saying that that can be bad for you. Like, a lover telling you that you're better than you actually are, that can mm-hmm. lead to some bad situations. So, is the right thing to do, the the morally best thing to do for your lover, to be absolutely straight with them all the time? Or does it not even matter because your implicit biases towards your lover prevent you from giving an objective assessment? I think there's definitely some context that's important in it that if you if you're going to your lover as your lover and saying, "Hey, what do you think of this thing?" that the, the, the those implicit biases are there and also hopefully you're getting more opinions than just from them. But right. If you if your significant other had made 30 vlogs before and you went to them and said, "Hey, what do you think about this vlog?" as another vlogger, then it would be important to be more forward. I guess also bearing in mind that you need to continue existing with that person or you'd like to continue existing alongside that person. Right. So my final answer is it matters on context. 
<laughs> okay, I think I fall more on the side of my later, my latter um, option, which you so helpfully avoided by contexting mm-hmm. your way out of it. I, I think that it is very, uh, not subconscious per se, but in that vein where you just, you can't help but think it's better because yeah. uh, your lover made it. And you can't help but say, uh, you, yeah, yeah, that's, I guess that's it. And even if you're being, com- even if you were completely truthful to them and you told them exactly what you thought of it, you couldn't give them a good mm-hmm. assessment of it. So that brings up the other question. Is it, uh, okay, and I want to reiterate the point that Socrates said that this is, this could be bad for you, yeah. right? This is. Uh, not a good uh, thing when this happens. Did he say that exactly? No, I... Hold on, let me get the exact quote. That's what I took away from it, at least. Um, it's partially because he is afraid. Okay, I'm, I'm reading it now. It's... A lover will praise what you say and what you do far beyond what is best, partly because he is afraid of being disliked, and partly because desire has impaired his judgment. Right. Uh, and that, that whole paragraph, the one that Zach's reading from, the stuff surrounding mm-hmm. 233B... That uh, I, I'm getting a negative connotation to all this. He didn't explicitly say this is bad, but he's re- writing it in a way that is a- applying a negative connotation. He's saying that your lover and your mentor shouldn't be the same because your lover is a bad mentor because they're in love. Right. W- which I do agree with. So... So I guess the question that I'm trying to get to, and philosophically, of course, this is not a concern. Is it immoral to ask your lover for their opinion? No. But I think if your relationship is clear... Okay, go ahead. Let me get my my argument for why it is. What you're doing is you're forcing them to give you an opinion that they can't give you objectively, which, in the long run, will hurt you. Okay. So what you're doing by asking them their opinion on this thing is giving them no choice but to ultimately hurt their, I, the person uh, that they love. I think your phrasing and your use of <laughs> no choice is strange. Okay, yes, they could just say, nope, I'm not answering that question. Because it it conjures to mind, like, somebody who's effectively holding you captive with their words, who's coming to you and saying, hey, do you like this thing? And if you say no, they're going to run off crying, which is not how it actually is. Okay, but even if it's not that extreme, that ha- that occurs, right? If you, that, that we've, we agreed on that previous to this, where you just, you are unable to give them an objective opinion right. if you are th- their lover. But if I... And that is bad for them. If you can't give them uh, a good assessment of their work, if I that went is bad to my significant other, no, correct. Wait, hold on. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> just follow along. Just okay. Go through the logic with me. Just make sure we agree on every point, and you, then you can tell me why I'm wrong. Let me type this thought out somewhere then, so that I can. Okay. So. Uh, th- they have no choice but to tell you something that isn't objectively true. Okay. We agree on that. Uh, y- yes, we do agree on that. You are correct. Okay. 
uh, telling you something that isn't objectively true is bad for you. Okay. And they are unable, if you ask them in this way, which is, hey, do you like this? There's no way for them not to ultimately have something bad happen to you, even if it's minor. Okay. It's there. Therefore, you are forcing your lover to do something that is bad for their lover, which is you, but their lover. Mm -hmm. And that is why asking your lover how they like this vlog is immoral. Then... (laughs) Okay, what was your typed out thought? I have another thought, and they're connected but not the same. When you asked me, actually you didn't ask me, when you sent me the vlog... My instinct was fairly negative. I saw it and I was like, uh. And it was affected by both my own shitty human emotions and territorialism of, oh man, he's encroaching on my space of being a person who vlogs. (laughs) Okay. But it was also influenced then. The way that I, I expressed it to you was in the terms of being your friend and not wanting to shit on it because I knew that those bad thoughts that I was having about it were at least partially formed from the weird territorialism right so is all communication that isn't with an a universally objective computer unethical because that's the extreme that that carries to let's say i had a different view about the vlog okay let's say that i had the view the view that my vlog was the perfect vlog and I am going to show it to everyone because it is the perfect blog and they will just uh they they will just hand me the keys to their car because they love my vlog so much. Yeah. That's that's what happens in my experience. Yeah. And when I sent it to Zach, I wanted to confirm that theory, the the this is the perfect blog. And he says and Zach being my friend and wanting to uh not hurt my feelings says yeah, it's pretty good, Stephen. And not this is not that good a vlog, Stephen. And then I start like going to the extreme the other way, which is like, everyone look at this. Everyone look at my vlog. Look how great it is. Uh, <laughs> give me your car. Okay, I'm or whatever. I'm you know? following the story, but not the logic. I don't know the, the point you're trying to drive towards, but I'll 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 find it. My, okay, the point I'm trying to drive towards is that I. I'm embarrassing mm-hmm. myself at this point, right? Because I am flaunting this this vlog that is not very good, and I am putting it out as the best work I've done. Okay. And if this is the best work, I, and if someone looking at this, a third party might say, if this is the best work you've done, oh boy, this is, uh, oh, you're not very good. And so Zach not being straight up with me and saying, yeah, it's pretty good, and not, Steven, this is pretty shit, ultimately hurt me, even though it spared right. my feelings at the time. But Zach, being my friend, felt the social obligation and the implicit mm-hmm. biases to not tell me that. And I indirectly made Zach hurt me. Yes, so that's what I'm saying, is all interaction, therefore, is unethical. Well, no, because if I if I just went up to a random stranger and said, what do you think about this vlog? Isn't it great? And they're like, I have no so- social obligation to you. I am not your lover. I'm not your friend. But they still have the other implicit biases. That's what I was trying to bring up with the territorialism. That if you bring it up to someone who is trying to make the same kind of content, their their reaction will also be based on 
them and the fact that they feel some sort of ownership over it. Or maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just extra and territorial. No, I don't think so. I think that, but I, I mean, I'm going up to a random stranger and the, the chances that they have a vlog are growing every day, but very small. <laughs> I don't think that another person having a vlog is the only bias that could occur. I think that no one would be truly 100% objective. No, of course not. But they can offer an opinion that won't hurt me in the long run. Like, you can still get an objective opinion about your vlog from somebody. And you have to be able to do that. Or not even not even objective, but a socially agreed upon mm-hmm. uh, review of your vlog. Right? Because... If you just take a large enough, if you take a large enough sample, you're going to get the same result as the whole group of people who will ever watch your vlog. Okay. So you can, you can reduce that down to whatever you want, but there's a pretty good chance if you go up to a random person on the street and say, what do you think of this vlog? He's going to give you the same answer as the average person. Okay. So not all communication is immoral but all communication with anyone you have an established relationship with is immoral no because you you can say zach i value you value your friendship and you won't go around like shouting to the streets stephen barry values my friendship isn't that great (laughs) and embarrass yourself and you won't do anything on a smaller scale of that either i think it's very specifically and socrates makes the uh, makes it seem like this, that it's just for things you made or performances or... No, because he also talks about things that could otherwise be attributable to luck. Yeah, when he has a stroke of luck that's not worth a moment's pleasure, love compels him to sing its praises. Can you give me an example of that? No. Yeah, I can't either. I, I, and I think that's... I, I, was, I was thinking of the wrong thing. That's talking about going from the lover to the beautiful boy. He would say, oh, you are so great at a things like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I can't think of one. My other point that I would like to make is that if you had come to me with the best vlog I had ever seen, I would say so. And when you came to me with the vlog you made, I said what I did think, which is that it was one of the better first vlogs I've seen. Right. And sure, maybe the wording of that was tempered by our friendship. But there's still some scale. And if you went to see your significant other, they wouldn't tell you it was the best thing they'd ever seen. I, I assume, I suppose. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I'm taking it to the extreme to make it a more clear example. But it, there are smaller consequences to those smaller uh, deviations from the truth, I guess. Mm-hmm. But I also think that you have a, a knowledge built in just from being a human on Earth that... Not everything everyone says can be taken at face value. So I don't think it's unethical to say something to you that isn't perfectly to be taken at face value because you know that you don't need to take it at face value. So what you're saying, let me make sure I'm getting this right. I'm going to rephrase it. Yeah, because I I kind of, there were too many face values there and I got lost. I'm going to twist your words around a little bit here to make them suit my own needs. Um, It is only moral to ask your lover what they think of a thing you made because you know they can't give you a straight answer. That doesn't sound like it should be right, but I can't find a fault with it. 
<laughs> well, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm getting at here, is that it, it doesn't sound right. It shouldn't be right. It's I don't think it is right. It, it seems like, oh yeah, we should just assume that everyone's going to be mean to you. Like, I know it's not what this is, but it, it's... It's one of those like things you hear about in a certain field, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, this this is how people think about that kind of thing." Like, uh, I'm sure in finance and advertising, mm. there it's pretty cutthroat, and you hear stories of like people just getting royally just because they uh, just because they yeah. tried to be nice, basically, and that's that's what that feels like. If it, it feels like it shouldn't be right, and it really doesn't feel like it. Uh, it should be so to minimize that kind of thing the that like ethical gray area where it's it's okay but only because everyone in the past has not been okay to minimize that you shouldn't ask your lover for their opinion on a thing i don't think i'm going to implement this theory in my own life yeah i think i think we should reiterate that we're extrapolating and nothing that we're saying here from top of mind no nuances (laughs) thought out interpretations of ancient greek philosophy uh should be read as our final personal philosophies yes because i really like it when someone tells me i did a good job even if i can't take what they say at exactly face value right because zach's my friend and i know he can't give me a completely objective opinion I mean, I kind of did. It was it was in a strange context, but <laughs> I mean, it, I guess the the part of this I do stand behind on a personal level is that no, you didn't because you can't. It can feel as objective as as you want it to be, but you, if someone else made that vlog, mm-hmm. I might have just not watched it all the way through. If a random person made that vlog, you would undoubtedly have. Yeah, you you would have a different opinion about it, and you even if you were giving your truthful answer to me, it was colored by our friendship. Who is the vlog for? This is mostly unrelated. I just want to know how you think about it. What do you mean? When you make the vlog, who do you think, oh, I hope, I really hope that X or X demographic really likes this? Um, I think diehard worrying bugs fans is generally what I'm thinking about when I'm making it. The Worrying Bugs fans that want to see more, I guess, maybe. I don't know. Something like that. A, a large, uh, uh, an audience. Not a person or a certain group of people, but a, a base of people that I have built up via other things who are just a bit more interested than what the podcasts or the apps or the white papers can okay. sustain. Okay, well, I'm glad we made it a whole 10 pages in. <laughs> oh, boy. Page 12, they, they get into their discussion about the speech itself. Um, and at that time, I realized that this is the first time, at least in this circle, this circle of philosophers, that these ideas have been discussed. So I can give them a pass in some mm-hmm. way if they don't. It just, like, struck me as unoriginal or uninspired because I've heard it so much. But if it's the first time that it, it entered writing, <laughs> it's a different thing. But now these kinds of ideas, you need to have another three layers for them to even be worth talking about. Right, yeah. Yeah, I didn't think about that. And then on page 13, um, 
Phaedrus announces that the best thing about the speech is that Lysias omitted nothing worth mentioning about the subject, so no one will ever be able to add anything of value. So really, I think that we should just cut everything that came before this. Sure. <laughs> I mean, he said that in the story just so that uh, just so that Socrates could come back and say, hmm, well, actually, I bet I can add something to this conversation. Right. <laughs> there was a really long pause before that. Sure. What what thoughts were you collecting? I was trying to figure out if I could remember Socrates argument enough to ah. say, like, well, I mean, there is stuff to add pretty much always, mm. regardless of how thorough you are. Page 14, they talk about the the Archons, who swore an oath that they would put up a gold statue of themselves if they did something wrong, which seems a weird way to do it. But then I, I remember that we don't even need our leaders of the day to promise this because guerrilla artists do it for them. Like there was a, a naked statue of Trump, a statue of Trump naked, I suppose would be the, the way to phrase that. In some New York park in 2016, um, by the way, New York Parks, Parks Department, their official statement on the matter was, uh, we do not allow any unauthorized erections, no matter how small, was the official park statement on that matter. <laughs> Zach, I'm going to need you to link that in the show notes because that's very, very funny. Uh, then we get to page 16, and by now, Socrates has lamented he is going to, I think Phaedrus put him under enough pressure that he's going to do his own speech, um, and he starts this whole paragraph of, come to me, oh you clear-voiced muses, whatever your name be, whatever your name comes from, um, and I too spend an entire paragraph calling upon the muses anytime I am asked to improvise. In the biz, we call that stalling. <laughs> Yes, I was just going to say, that was just him like, um, well, let's see here. Um, mm -hmm. um, um, oh, yeah, just... and that's a really important question, and I'm so glad that you asked that, uh, Andrew, because I I think that that's something that our, our nation really needs to know about these days. Yeah, it'd be better if, it'd be more accurate, at least, if Socrates eventually uh, avoided the question and deflected. <laughs> It was just five pages of calling upon the muses. <laughs> until the until Phaedrus got bored and Okay, I had to reread the section on page seventeen. And I'm not sure if he meant to for this meaning to to have the for this paragraph to have this meaning, I should say. But um so it starts a little bit before two thirty eight B. Uh, whichever form stands out in a particular case gives its name to the person who has it, and that is not a pretty name to be called, not worth earning at all. If it is desire for food that overpowers a person's reasoning about what is best and suppresses his other desires, it is called gluttony, and it gives him the name of a glutton. While it is, while if it is a desire for drink, blah blah blah, basically what he's saying is that or in this first part of the that paragraph, what he's saying is that these overpowering desires are almost always negative. We we say, oh, that's a bad thing. We you shouldn't want that. You yes, shouldn't want... I think I think he's saying that the ideal state is to always be 
clear-headed in the rational mind. Right. And, but we, uh, maybe he just kind of implied it because I'm not seeing it in the paragraph I highlighted. I'm trying to find it again. Uh, so we don't tend to do that for mm-hmm. romantic love. In fact, we idolize it. We In our romantic comedies and stuff, we always like, it's always very sweet when a overpowering desire for a romantic love yeah. brings people together in a way that is not the case with gluttony or drink. I feel like now we have different words for these sorts of things, and I'm, I'm trying to map the words that I have onto the things they're saying. Like infatuation and lust are different than romance and love. Right. And I can't remember if Socrates said the thing about romantic love or if I was trying to make a, uh observation. Uh, yep, uh, after 238c. This desire, all-conquering in its forceful drive, takes its name from uh, the word okay. for force and is called eros. The desire to take pleasure right. in beauty. Right. Uh, I'm not sure mm-hmm. if I have too much to say about it. It's just interesting to me that... As a society, we're pretty okay with people pursuing romantic love uh, harshly, I guess, would be a way to put it. And and I think it's interesting that we call it romantic love when it does take that face. When it's harsh, Mm -hmm. it seems a different thing than romance. Right. Even though it, by the standard of gluttony, say, I think you can more, we more easily apply harsh the negative connotation to gluttony over romantic love there is definitely a point in society where we're like eh, that's not cool mm-hmm. you you shouldn't be pursuing that anymore but it is far higher than that yeah. of food or drink or whatever yeah yeah i suppose i suppose it is because a glutton and a romantic have very different connotations exactly speaking of the way that things are worded um at the end he says all right then my brave friend and the footnote is that this is the epic form of the word which leads me to believe that you could conjugate words to be epic (laughs) yeah and i think that that's something that english is lacking (laughs) it's a funny thought unless you consider um Like the gothic text that people, like there's a Unicode gothic text that you can put on Twitter or Tumblr or whatever. And I think that that is the Mm -hmm. English equivalent of epic form. Yeah, yeah. And then my last note is Kindle. I am assuming you can see this too. It shows you the popular highlights. So like, oh, 40 other people highlighted this passage. So maybe you want to look at it extra hard or something. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't, but I think I can turn it on. I just haven't because mm-hmm. it seems like... It's interesting to see the things that other people highlight. Like here, um, one of the popular highlights was, So it will not be of any use to your intellectual development to have as your mentor and companion a man who is in love. And I guess maybe most people are reading this in the context of a class of some sort. And then that makes sense as a highlight. But in the context of reading this to, like, understand the human condition or to understand yourself, I feel like it doesn't have much application. I agree. So, really, people don't don't go to 
don't go to other people. Don't go to the common man for your uh, analysis of mm-hmm. ancient Greek yeah, philosophy. We have the context. We have the hot takes. We know <laughs> what Plato was really trying to say. And we know what is applicable to the real world. Mm-hmm. Only us, not anyone else. Okay, so next time we'll be reading up to the end of the transition to discussion of rhetoric, which has the marking of 259D in our <laughs> books. Great. So if you want to read along and get our Worrying Bugs supreme hot takes and interpretation of this work, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcatcher and follow us on Twitter. Give us those star ratings. They're super helpful. And until next fortnight, goodbye. Goodbye.